Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. There are all manner of ill winds that shall blow in this episode, which is number 45. That's 45 weeks since the start of the war in October 1899. And this podcast series is following the weeks, so to speak. Right now we're in an interregnum. It's not a dormant period and not an hiatus. Boer General Christian de Wett still appears to have the initiative in the Free State, although only because he's still free. But appearances can be deceptive because de Wett has a paltry 2,500 men riding with him across the felt while he's being pursued by Lieutenant General Hunter with over 20,000. But Hunter is squaring off against a highly motivated and skilled enemy. The Boers regard the large British force as an illegal army, Their families are adrift as refugees moving from place to place. Historically, armies like this are notoriously difficult to overcome quickly unless the invading force resorts to extreme tactics such as those used by Genghis Khan. This is not possible in the modern era for obvious reasons. In July and August of 1900, real-time telegramming has already proven tricky where the enemy plugs into the telegraph lines to spy on British communication. The predominantly pro-war citizens in Britain were receiving daily updates on battles, often before commanding officers in other parts of South Africa received their briefing. It's an anomaly that continues to plague military commanders to this day. While General Redvers Buller was busy tramping about Natal searching for Boers, he was not always aware what his colleagues were doing in the Free State, or the Transvaal. And General Hunter was tracking down General Christian de Wett. However, it was the surrender closer to the Brandwater range near Basutoland or modern-day Lesotho that disappointed and enraged General de Wet. Back to that in a moment. De Wet had retreated into the range of hills called the Renostopurt, dominated by a large Boer farm, which lies 35 kilometers away from the town of Pochestrum. He had rested there for a few days while the English reinforcements marched steadily towards his lair. De Wett writes, Notwithstanding their overpowering numbers, it seemed as if the English had no desire to follow me into the mountains of Renosterpoort. They had a different plan. They began to march around me, sending troops from Friedefort over Wonderhevel to the Renoster River. The English were at the Renoster River, or Rhino River, because they were encircling De Wett, preferring to cut him off than to assault him directly. Such was the fear the commanders had of their enemy, coupled with the fact that they knew he would flee further west if they didn't shut him down. Finally, de Wett had a choice to make. Should he break through the growing cordon, or move further north across the Vaal River and then gallop into the Transvaal? De Wett wrote, The free stater preferred to remain in his own country, and he would have been able to do so had we not been hampered by a big wagon camp and a large number of oxen. This wagon camp had been the bane of his life for some weeks now, and de Wett was soon to be rid of them, but little did he know at that moment. He was to remain at the Renostepoort until a letter arrived on the 2nd of August, delivered by a British officer, which shattered his world, and this is how he described that moment. On that day, we had to drink a cup of bitterness. It was on the 2nd of August that I received the news that Prince Lua had surrendered near Noport. 
He was referring to Martinez Prinsloo, who had declared himself the commander-in-chief of the 4th Division, left behind in the Brandwater Basin the week before. Remember last week I described how Lieutenant General Hunter had moved to shut the mountain passes to the north, south and west of that range, but left the eastern passes open towards the Dragon Mountains, the Drakensberg. Eventually he had closed the Golden Gate Pass, the only route left for this Boer division to use in order to escape the closing trap. Prinsler failed to do so. By dawn on the 29th of July, Hunter's vanguard had pushed the Boers to Slapkrans, midway between Voorhiesburg and Golden Gate. Bruce Hamilton's artillery unit, meanwhile, had managed to shut down the Boer movement with their heavy-duty 5-inch cow guns, as they were called. As Thomas Packenham describes, this was the checkmate move against Prinsloo. The main body of this division, 5,000 Boers in total, were trapped. The wagon road through Golden Gate had been left open until the 28th of July, but now they had nowhere to go. There were really only two men who could have prevented this sudden collapse of nerve. President Steyn of the Free State and General De Vette. Both were far away. So, on the morning of the 29th of July, near Fariesburg, General Prinsloo sent a message under a white flag to General Hunter. Prinsloo said he was willing to surrender, but only if all the men except the leaders could go home, haste to, it was known. The big problem here was that General Prinsloo was not actually in charge of this division. It was General Rue. When the latter heard about this, he galloped from his lager close to the Golden Gate Pass to tell Hunter that it was all wrong, that General Prinsloo was a charlatan, but Rue found himself imprisoned. Hunter, of course, had thrown out General Prinsloo's terms and had his own. Ironically, at the time this was all going on, the main telegraph cable to Lord Roberts, the commander-in-chief in the Transvaal, was not functioning, and the overall British commander would have demanded unconditional surrender. Instead, and working off his own bat, General Hunter offered the Boers a concession. I have promised not to confiscate private property or personal effects of the Burgers, he wrote. This meant the Boer commanders could keep their wagons and property, but they were still prisoners. Very lenient, and surely Hunter realised that Lord Roberts would have rejected this outright. The actual surrender took days to accomplish because of the logistics involved. It was not just the Boer soldiers, it was the Boer soldiers and their entire support, including wagons. These covered wagons had always been the symbol of the Boer frontiersmen, as it had been the symbol of their American counterparts. The wagons, herds of cattle, their rifles, their horses. Soon the valley around Fariesburg was full of trekking wagons. Unlike previous surrenders, this time the British ensured the Boers handed in their fearful rifle, the Morza. A bonfire was lit. When each man arrived, their Morza was opened, ammunition removed, then the rifles were flung onto the massive pyre which burnt night and day. During the following days, Hunter's troops seized nearly 3,000 cattle, 4,000 sheep, and 6,000 horses. The bonfire also consumed around 2 million rounds of ammunition, and legend holds that where it burnt, the grass has never grown again. British Captain Bromley Davenport was one of the officers overseeing the surrender, and he says, They came in about 300 to 400 at a time, threw down their arms and ammunition, then marched away south. 
they were all allowed to ride, a privilege never awarded to any prisoners whom they took. They struck me as a good-natured lot, and entirely destitute of pride or shame. They did not appear to mind being beaten. I had a long talk with Rue. He means General Rue, who tried to prevent the surrender. Rue, the fighting parson of Senecal, a very dangerous fanatic. I am glad we have got him, but I could not help liking him. Not all the Boers entrapped with Prince Lu had hands up, so to speak. General Ulufir and around 1,500 men had made a run for it through the Golden Gate, despite the units waiting there, and he'd managed to escape. General Hunter was angered, saying they had broken his trust. The reality was Hunter had achieved the greatest haul of Boer prisoners of war since this war had begun. Over 4,000 Boers were now his prisoners of war at astonishingly light cost. 33 British soldiers had died, 242 had been injured in a fortnight of fighting in some of the wildest and most difficult terrain in South Africa. Given the disasters of previous engagements, this was success. For the Boer soldiers who surrendered, it meant a journey to the ports of Port Elizabeth, East London and Cape Town. They were then shipped to a small island called Ceylon in the Indian Ocean, modern-day Sri Lanka, where they were imprisoned in the Deataloa, or Happy Valley, 5,000 feet above sea level, in the central mountains. But the ugly fact for General Hunter and the British was that this surrender merely goaded the Boers back home to fight on. General Rue was an honest man, unlike General Prince Lu. At least, that's what de Wett thought when he heard the news. Back in Rnostepoort, further to the northwest, de Wett had no idea that this was going on. That was until he drank from the cup of bitterness on the 2nd of August. General Charles Knox, Hunter's emissary, rode up to a meeting point outside the Renostaport Mountains. De Wett didn't want to give the general any opportunity to spy on his forces, and he wrote, Halfway between the English lines and our own we met him. He presented us with this letter. This letter was a terse note written by Martinus Prinsloo after he surrendered, and it read, Hunter's Camp, 30 July 1900. To the Commander-in-Chief C.R. De Wett. Sir, I have been obliged, owing to the overwhelming forces of the enemy, to surrender unconditionally with all the Orange Free State lagers here. I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant, M. Prinsler, Commander-in-Chief. To which De Wett says, I sent my reply in an unclosed envelope. And it ran as follows. In the Felt, 3rd August, 1900. Sir, I have the honour to acknowledge the receipt of your letter, dated the 30th of last month. I am surprised to see that you call yourself Commander-in-Chief. By what right do you usurp that title? You have no right to act as Commander-in-Chief. I have the honour to be C.R. De Wett, Commander-in-Chief. The real Boer commander-in-chief was thunderstruck and said later that one could gnash one's teeth to think that a nation should so readily rush to its own ruin. De Wett knew that he couldn't get to Prince Lu to extract what would have been surely a terrible revenge. He was in Ranostapurt, hundreds of kilometers away and with only 2,500 men. He was surrounded by 20,000 British troops, but there was an escape route. 
That was via Parais from Potchestrum, then over the Vaal River and into the Transvaal. It's a bit like heading out of the frying pan and into the fire, but he had no choice. It must be said, however, that for all de Wett's brilliant tactical moves, he had made a fatal error in leaving behind the 4th Division instead of ensuring that all four divisions made it out of the Brandwater range. Furthermore, he was not one to admit mistakes, mostly because he made so few. But this was a big one. However, in the eyes of the British public, he had become a swashbuckling enemy. His exploits were dazzling and baffling, and some said he was like a magician. Who was this extraordinary man who led Roberts and his generals on a merry dance, swooping on Broadwood at Sanna's post, cutting up the Royal Irish at Reddersburg, pouncing on the Derbyshires at Renostorofiat, and then vanishing as swiftly as he'd arrived? While the public back in England began to secretly marvel at this mobile Boer army, prisoners of war and de Wett's own men knew exactly why he was successful. He was intensely painstaking about processes, and both POWs who watched him while they travelled as his guests and his own men knew he was one of the few really professional commanders on either side. Professionalism in the army is really the control of one main characteristic, particularly when in the midst of battle, when planning and executing a war, and that is common sense, which de Wett had in abundance. This sounds simplistic. However, it is the most difficult of intellectual characteristics when all about you are panicking, dead or dying. This is now where General de Wett's incredible common sense was to be his and his 2,500 men's saving grace. For when he set out from the Brandwater range, a fortnight before, he had taken two groups of scouts, which was a master stroke. He was not an arrogant commander who thought magic may save him. He was pragmatic. The secret of what happened next lies in the fact that he used professional international and local special operatives, reconnaissance units, scouts. Captains Dani Taron and Skippers headed up these two units, which were highly valuable and successful. They found the gap that General Roberts had left in the south of the Transvaal. It was a tiny gap across the Vaal River called Skuman's Drift, and it was through this gap that de Wett was to escape once more. But that's for next week. It's time to shift our gaze to the western Transvaal briefly, actually not far in South African terms from where de Wett was actually battling the British. For near Rustenburg, northwest of the capital Pretoria, another Boer general called Kurs de la Rey was roaming the felt with 1,500 highly mobile and motivated men. August has opened with British troops pouring into the Free State to hunt de Wet, but de la Rey was highly aware of this strategy and knew there would be weak points in the British line. Rustenburg proved to be exactly that point. One of the British heroes of the Anglo-Boer War, Lord Baden-Powell, the man who would start the World Scout Movement, was garrisoned in Rustenburg at this point. He was about to evacuate the town with 500 Australian troops who called themselves the Imperial Bushmen, as well as Rhodesian volunteers under Colonel Hall. If you remember the latter, Colonel Hall, he had spent an extremely uncomfortable day as a prisoner of Sarl Ilof in the closing days of the attack on Mafeking in April. Baden-Powell's force was based around a kilometre from the nearby Ilans River at a place called Brackfontein, guarding a large group of refugee women and children. 
Roberts had sent an order to Lord Baden Powell to withdraw under cover of a force sent from Mafeking, but before he could evacuate, Boer General Dalare attacked. We'll leave the details of this battle for next week's podcast, as it began on the 5th of August. So let's turn our attention at the end of this week to General Roberts in Pretoria and his wife. Roberts was convinced that both Steyn and De Wet were finished in the Free State and sent a jaunty telegraph to Lansdowne in the British War Office in London predicting the Mercurial General's imminent demise. I shall be greatly disappointed if De Wet and Steyn managed to escape, he wrote. Then he wrote a long letter to Queen Victoria. In fact, he'd been writing to the monarch every few weeks and in some letters had sent copies of his victorious battle telegrams. He should have learned by now that Queen Victoria did not trust those around her who fawned too much. For example, when Roberts entered Pretoria, he heard about a large statue of Oom Paul Kruger, the Transvaal president, which was to be erected by the Boers. Naturally, Roberts, being of the new order, wanted to expunge heroic symbols of the past. So he asked the Queen if she'd prefer her statue placed in Church Square in Pretoria instead of Kruger's. The Queen was not amused at the thought of metaphorically stepping into Kruger's shoes. There was also the matter of Lord Roberts's wife, Nora Roberts, and their two children. Lord Roberts had brought her up to Pretoria from Bloemfontein, and Queen Victoria was totally against the idea of what was called camp followers. The Boers were experts in having their families close by their commandos. The Queen didn't want the British to follow their example. Nevertheless, in early July 1900, Nora Roberts and her two sons boarded a special armoured train guarded by pom-pom guns and Maxim machine guns and then set off to Pretoria to join her husband. This caused Lord Roberts a great deal of trouble as whispering began behind his back. While he claimed his wife was needed to care for the troops in Pretoria hospitals, others spoke of a petticoat government. It didn't help that Nora Roberts was a physically large woman and literally towered over Lord Roberts, who was short of stature. The Boers hated her. She'd been violently hostile about Boer women and children and vocal about it. And many believed Roberts's tough new stance against the Boer families where farm buildings had been burnt was her doing. The British Field Marshal had a few other problems. It wasn't only De Wet and Steyn and Delaray and Louis Boerter. You see, Lord Roberts had fired two of his most senior officers after the disasters at Sannaspost, Redesburg and Lindley. Both Generals Gattaca and Colville were sacked, but they felt they'd been unfairly singled out for humiliation after the British Army's multiple failures in the war so far. And by now, Winston Churchill had sailed back to England to write his book on the Anglo-Boer War and rethink his political ambition and perhaps stand once more for the Oldham constituency. More about that in the future. Next week we'll hear how De Wet enters the Transvaal, harried by General Hunter, while Delaray, who's been using the Michalisberg mountain range as cover, emerges to cause chaos in Rustenburg. Please remember to rate our podcast on iTunes if you can. Also check out the website at abwarpodcast.com. If you have any tips and views, please share them with me through the email address on that site or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. Ik naar die kant.
Aan die opbiechten te staan, daar onder bij de grote rivier. O, breng mij terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar mij zaal.